They're the evil team that's keeping my beloved A's from coming to the city where they belong, okay? Um, you know, but, uh, before we, we get, go on to taste, I just want to just say a couple things. Um, you know, uh, where are they? they? They just step out. They're, they're in the back. Dan, this is Daniel and Joanne. They haven't been with us for a little bit because they're a little baby. Uh, this is uh, Cameron's first day of church. Welcome, Cameron. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> So it's just a great day. And I don't know if you guys, some of you guys know Chan. He used to come to our church. That lovely lady sitting next to Chan, that's his wife. They just got married last week. So they're newlyweds. Let's give them a hand too, right? <laughs> Her name is Katie, all right, or Catherine. I, I like that name better. Um, so just say hi to, her, hi to them after service and so forth, right? And just it's great to see you, Cameron. Uh, you know, you, you could, if you can stay quiet <laughs> and hear the gospel, that would be really great for you, okay? <laughs> All right, um, let's go to today's passage. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. And then let me also ask you to go to another passage, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. So put your finger on the Matthew passage first, and then we'll look at the John passage, and then we'll go to Matthew. So John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. These are two of the most important passages in the scriptures. We're going to look at the latter portion of Jesus' prayer for, his, for all the church, for the believers, for all those who will be his disciples, which some have called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And then we're going to look at a portion out of Jesus' baptism. Now, for those of you who may not have been with us, this is the final message of a series. You know, some of you were like, man, this is long. I mean, it's long, 12 parts, part 12 of a series that I've called God Our Father. And this is the last one. And um, I've entitled this message, Beloved Like Jesus. And, um, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of things and if you, have, if you haven't heard the other messages, okay, this is a kind of self-contained message. You, you don't have to hear the other message to understand this one. But I hope, especially for those of you who have tracked along with the series, that you're really starting to get a feel for how close, how deeply the Father looks at you, how deeply He loves you. And um, more than anything, that's what this message is about. So John chapter 16, verse 20 This is the word of God. This is what Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only. That means for these 12 disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, for all of the church, for us today, who believe in the gospel through the word of the disciples. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let me repeat that last part. I will continue to make your name known, that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. This is uh, from Jesus' baptism. I don't think it's a little strange, like Jesus was baptized. You know, Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he had no sin, but he became baptized. And this is what happened when it happens. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for today's message. Lord, I'm going to preach on something that is so basic and so fundamental, and yet is so staggering and so tremendous that we, we just can't seem to get it. Or we get it so poorly. And though I may clumsily speak these things which are so beyond me, they're so large and so staggering to even fathom, I pray that you would take my stumbling lips as you have done through much of the series, Lord, but even especially today, and your spirit would speak to us. Your spirit would make these things true and resonate and ring in our hearts. Begin to understand, not just with our minds, but receive in our hearts the way you love us like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question to start this uh, message got this question from um, from my our my dear friend Christy. For those of you who uh, don't know, um, my wife and I are very close friends with Pastor Young Kim, who was raised up through this church, and his wife Christy. And Christy, her training, she has a master's in marriage and family therapy. And what she is she does every day is she gets together with very broken people. She's their counselor. She's their therapist. We were. And when my wife and I get together with, you know, this couple who was among our dearest, dearest friends, we just start talking about Jesus and stuff starts coming out. And so Christy and I, we start kind of putting our, I, I put my theological expertise and she starts giving her counseling expertise and we start putting two and two together and we start talking about ministry. And she asked me this very interesting question. She said, and this is a question I'm going to ask you, what is worse to have a mother who is depressed or to have a mother who is psychotic? Hmm. With that very morbid question, I'd like to start this, <laughs> this, this sermon, okay? What would be worse, to grow up with a mom who is depressed or to grow up with a mom who is psychotic? Right, you're sitting there, just, just kind, of, it's kind of like, gee, poison A or poison B, let's switch, which one would be worse, Okay. And, um, and, and I'm in no way trying to make light if your mom was depressed. You know, some of you may have had a depressed mom, 
right? Some of you had a mom that maybe, I don't know if you'd call her psychotic, but let's just say she was broken, and you were, you know, you, you were not sure if she was always there. So I'm not in any way trying to make light of this, okay? Um, let me give you the answer. Some of you may go, like, I don't know. You probably don't know, because when she asked me that question, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure you're going to tell me, and, um, and it'll be very interesting. And Christy's answer was, it's worse to have a depressed mom. Isn't that interesting? When your instincts think, isn't psychotic? That sounds really bad. <laughs> psychotic just sounds about as bad as it can get, right? Isn't that really bad? So depressed is bad, but this is psychotic worse. But she actually said, having a depressed mom's worse. And here's why. Because if your mom is psychotic, she's going to start acting in ways that are just out there. And when she does that, you will know there's something wrong with her. A child, will, when a mom is psychotic, will know that there's something wrong with her. And when she, you know, I'm sure there's times when she's acting good, but then there's other times when she's going to start acting out there. And when she goes there, the child goes, there's something wrong with her, and the child will start to tune her out and start to protect himself from, you know, this, you know, whatever crazy behavior or way she's starting to act out. But... If your mom is depressed, what will happen is your mom will do all the normal things that her mom does, you know, cook for you and clean for you and take care of you and all this stuff, but she won't be there. She won't be there. Her heart won't be there. Her pleasure in her children won't be there. Her face won't light up. She won't be there. She'll just be a shell of who she is. She won't really be there. And the child will grow up thinking this is just normal. And, but what will be normal for you, this child, if you have a depressive this, is that your mom loves you, but this love will just feel so thin. And the way you perceive love will be so weak. Now, why am I talking, starting this message this way? Because I want you to, just, just two points out of this. One is, how you perceive Love from somebody who is your superior. And so many people in our culture, we are profoundly deluded in this society. We really think, you, if you are going to be a truly whole and thriving, flourishing human being, you need somebody who is your superior, somebody bigger than you, greater than you, whom you esteem, someone who is worthy to look at you and light up. Their face lights up when they see you. They take pleasure in you. Life comes out of them when they have pleasure and love in you. You need that to come into you, and you need that to come onto you regularly. But our culture thinks you don't need anybody. You just need you. We literally think that you can tell yourself well, who you are. We say, if, you, if somebody tells you you're ugly, you just tell yourself you're pretty. If somebody tells you you're nothing, you just tell yourself you're somebody, and you, know, you just believe yourself. Believe in yourself. I mean, we literally believe in the self-salvation project in this culture. You know what? That's complete nonsense. It doesn't work. And as people are trying to do this, they're actually becoming more broken. They're not, it's not, they're not becoming more fixed. They're becoming more broken. But if you grow up with somebody, and this is the person you're supposed to receive this from, you are, and you're, you think you're being loved, but the way you're being loved is so thin, you will be deeply broken, and you don't know it. That's why it's worse. Okay? A second reason I want to say this to you is many of you perceive God like that. 
Many of you know that God loves you, but the way God loves you is like he just kind of grudgingly and just barely takes care of you, but the connection is not in like he's not very there. It's like having a depressed mom. So that's why I started that way. Doesn't that suck? Right? Let's go to John chapter 17. There is way too much in this text for me to uh, go over. I mean, it would take weeks to, to go over. Even just these six verses, just these six verses would take weeks of Bible study to do adequately. But I just want to show you um, a few verses. Go to verse 22. Just a couple things that Jesus says. And I want you to think about this. Jesus is praying this for you. And unlike, and I want you to just, I know that many of you, when you pray something to God, you're thinking, well, I'm a terrible Christian with very little faith, or I'm not even a Christian, or I'm a bad person or something, so why, I'm sure God you know, ignores a lot of my prayers. I'm not going to say yes. But remember, this is Jesus. So if Jesus asks something to the Father for you, you don't think the answer is going to be yes? You don't think the Father is going to say, you know, you're not really kind of quite living up to it, son. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going to, you know, say yes to that one. Okay? This is Jesus' prayer for you. Okay? Verse 22, he says this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Look, the Father poured out his Glory, everything that is important of the Father, He put into His Son. And His connection with the Son is so deep and so wonderful that He says that we're one. Now, it's interesting. They're one, but we know what that means is they're relationally one. The way more like a husband and father are one, or whether you and your close friends are one. But that doesn't mean that the Son lost His individuality. But His connection to the Father is so great that He says that they're like one. But the, what the Father did was he poured something glorious into the Son. You should catch that. And, you know, when you think about what we glory, when we think about something, like, does that mean that there's light shining off Jesus' head? He glows like a light bulb, like a super light bulb or something? Does that mean that he's just super-duper powerful and he's omnipotent? You know what? Um, the, the Son was always the Son. He was always God. So... I don't know if he actually needed the Father to give that to him. The attributes of the Godhead, omnipotence, light and radiance, all that stuff. He didn't, does he actually need the Father to give it to him? He's saying that the Father gave him something. Okay, The Father is in, and he gave him something, and he's now talking. He is the eternal Son. He's been given something by the Father, but now he's, the, he's a man. He's a man who is the Son. And as a man, he's showing us the Father gave glory and put into me. And when you see this man, Jesus, you are looking at the glory of the Father poured into the Son. That's what you're seeing. And I want you to notice, it's not like anything that we understand. It's not because he's powerful or it's because he's good looking or it's because he's rich. But there is a powerful humanity in him so amazing that he has crazy effects on people. Utterly strange and broken and partying and really disgusting people come up to him and they come alive when they're around him. And he also has this other strange effects. People are really, they think they're so good, they, they hate him. 
he offends the heck out of them. Remember? And that's why I gave you that message a few weeks ago that says that why good people can't get Jesus, why they can't get God. Right? He has weird effects. But there's all part, there's something glorious, and it's in him. And it's revealed. Right? And this, it all has to do with this connection to the Father. That's one point I want to make. Now, let's go down to... Um, Verse 23, that's right. Okay, so listen. He goes on. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me, and here's the part I want you to catch, and love them even as you love me. The Father, the world will begin to see and know that we are loved We are loved by the Father even as the Father has loved Jesus. That's the part I want you to catch. Go to the last verse. In the last verse, in verse 26, I repeated this one in the reading. The love with which you have loved me, Father, may be in them when I'm in them and I'm in them. Here's what the Bible is saying. It's absolutely basic it's absolutely basic but it is absolutely staggering it is what it's saying is so crazy it is darn near unfathomable but it since it's so big you're like oh i'm not gonna get it and you just run past it in so many ways this 12-part series <laughs> this 12-part series was geared so that i could get to say this part to you does, how does the father love his son, Jesus? Does he love him with any lack whatsoever? Does he have any withholding from the son? Does he have any, go, well, you know, is there any conditional form of performance on the son? Is it like that? No. The quality, the amount, the consistency, the persistence, the absolute permanence and indefeatableness, the absolute everything with which the way the Father loves His Son, Jesus, is the way He loves you. This is the place that Christianity is trying to get you to. The place that that the, the gospel is trying to get you to believe this. This is what you're trying to get you to believe. That the way the Father loves His Son, Jesus, is the way He loves you. Not in some other way. The same way. It's the way he loves you. Now, for the rest of this message, what I'd like to do is talk about three implications of this truth, of this absolutely staggering, mind-blowing thing. And um, if you can begin to take this into you, it'll change you. It'll just change your life. Um, and at first, maybe you'll just get it like drips. Like I'm, if I'm trying to pour something in a cup, it's got to drip down like a tiny little drip into your heart. You know, like it's like a well of like dryness and this little tick will just drop like a little drop into the bottom of your mouth. But even then, it's, it's a fantastic start. It'll change you that, that much. Now, here are the implications. Number one. Number one, the Father has a special plan for your life. And it's unique just for you. It's not, it's not for anybody else. It's only for you. 
You know, the things that happen in your life that God has a has special eyes just for you and a special plan just for you. A lot of times people think, you know, there's all this stuff that happens in the world. Good things happen to that guy. Bad things happen to that guy. And some good things happen to me and a lot of bad things happen to me. You know, it's just stuff. It's just my life. Just stuff happens, right? And a lot of, and some are bad and I wish they didn't happen. But it's actually a plan. And, you know, notice what I'm saying to you. This is not some, you know, high piece of theology here. God has a special plan for you. But... You, and, and some of you are thinking, if he has a special plan for me, how come his plan sucks? <laughs> Is that what some of you are thinking? If he has a plan for me, then how come I got the parents that I got? Or how come I got the job that I got? Or how come I got the body that I got? <laughs> how come I got the problems that I have that I can't get over? It's not even just problems outside of me. They're problems inside of me. I got these voices. I've got habits in my heart. I got an anger and a disappointment. I cannot get over these things. And it has to do with all these things that have happened to me. This is God's plan. It's a crappy plan. But you notice, you notice God had a plan for Jesus. God had a plan for Jesus. And if you look at it without the eyes of Scripture, without faith, if you just look at it just kind of, the way kind of with natural human wisdom, it's kind of a sucky plan. In fact, it's not kind of a sucky plan. It's a terrible plan. This is God's plan for his son. You'll be born in a total crap hole place where the animals crap and eat. That's where you're born. You'll be born in the worst, lousy part of the empire, not a sophisticated place, a disgusting, terrible place of stupid people. You will be born and grow up with a lousy accent and people will think you're stupid. The Son of God had a weird accent. If you ever want to imagine Jesus, I mean, like, put like a hillbilly twang on him. I'm serious. Put a hillbilly Galilean twang on him and go, that's Jesus? I thought he was supposed to be more glorious than that. So he had to grow up with that. And then he's going, at the end of his life, here's the plan, son. This is the Father's plan first. Here's the plan. That toward the end of your life, everybody's going to reject you. All your friends will leave you. And your own people will hate you. And they're going to crucify you. Great plan. It's like, I'm sure this, the Son of God is like saying, great plan. Love it. <laughs> Just give that one to me too. Right? You notice that Jesus' life wasn't necessarily easy. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't glorious in any of the world's standards. But his, look what happens from his life, what flows out of his life. There is in something in him which is beyond anything that the world can touch. And it's not apart from the suffering. It's not apart from the hardship. It's not apart from the hardness of the plan itself. So God has a plan, and you look into this thing. And, you know, I know a lot of people hear this. Non-Christians hear this from Christians. God has a plan for your life. That's just some nonsense fairy tale that you guys say to yourself because you don't want to accept that your life just sucks just like the rest of us, and you're not special. Right? You're not special. I'm not special. And you don't have some special connection to God. That's a stupid thing that you guys believe. And some of you guys are... 
hear that, and so you grow up in the church, and you're like, I'm not supposed to believe what they say, but that's how I feel. <laughs> in your mind, you're like, God's not special. It's like, I'm not special. We're just dumb people, right? And we're like, we're, we're half-hearted, deficient Christians at best. I don't see any special people in this room. No Mother Teresa's and holy saints, just regular, craggy, messed up people. And some got really crappy faith and some have some messed up stuff in their lives. And I know some of the things that are messed up in their life and I know things that are messed up in my life. God, but has a plan, okay? And it's not despite those things, it's in and through those that glory will shine out. That's the first part I want to say to you. It's an astonishing thing. Now, I want to just say this other thing before I move on. You have bad things happening in your life. This is a cursed world. We're broken and messed up people. You could do nothing wrong and still horrific things could happen in your life. You know that? You know, you could, your child could die of a disease, God forbid, right? or of a car accident, and you were a perfectly good parent and you never did anything particularly bad. And you know why that could happen to you? And it's not because, it's not a punishment. Okay? You notice Jesus, Jesus got a punishment not for what he did. He got the punishment that we deserve. But you know, he, it wasn't because of his sonship. And when you are outside of Christ, the whole world and this crappy life, it is our punishment. It's, it's the curse. But as soon as you become a Christian, you are adopted. And now the father is going to look, he's never going to look at you this way. Do you think the Father ever punishes Jesus? He's just not very obedient, Jesus. <laughs> You're not very loving back to me. you think he ever punishes him? When he looks at you, any of the hardship that happens in your life is not punishment. It's never punishment. You need to understand that. It's not punishment. He loves you the way he loves Jesus, and he never punishes Jesus. It's a plan for you, and I don't like the way it's a plan for Jesus. It's never punishment. Please believe that. And a lot of you have the little, little CD that you can't shut off. Oh, I did that wrong. And that's why this didn't work out. Oh, I did wrong. That's, that's why I, I'm a bad Christian. That's why it didn't work out. Please shut that thing off. Tell it to shut up. Okay? Tell it to shut up. Like, you need to go to the wall and take that CD and rip it out of the wall and say, Holy Spirit, help me to rip that stinking, stupid CD out. There's no punishment. The plan has no punishment for you anymore. Jesus took all the punishment. Is only now left for you. It is a plan that may share in the suffering of Christ, but no, it's not punishment. Hear me, okay? It's number one. God has a plan for you. Number two. Let's go to the Matthew passage now. All right. The Matthew passage. The Bible. Well, let me just say the point, and then we'll get to the Matthew passage. Implication number one is God has a special plan for you, unique to you. Implication number two is God takes pleasure in you. You believe that? He takes pleasure in you. I know most people don't believe that. Almost all of you probably don't believe that, <laughs> right? God is pleased with me? God takes pleasure in me? The Bible, when you get to Christianity... Christianity is two central mysteries. These are two core doctrines. And if you ever go to a church and they don't bank everything on those two doctrines, you should go to another church. Seriously, you should just go to another church. 
Because you go, they may be a doctrinally sound church, but if they won't bank everything on those two, that they're they're not they're not doing they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The two core doctrines are at the core mysteries of Christianity. One is the doctrine of the Trinity. Two is the doctrine of the cross. It is the atonement. And right here, you know, what's happening is the Trinity is meeting at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. Okay, Jesus is he's righteous. He's just going to be accepted by God because he's purely righteous and he's, and he's never going to disobey as the son. But why did he get baptized? So that he would be so utterly one with us. He would invite us into this thing. And we, when, we, when you get baptized, what happens here is what happens to you. I want you to understand that. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Not because he needs it, but because he is inviting us into the Trinity, into the life of God himself. And here's what happens. So Jesus gets baptized. He comes up from the water. The Spirit comes down like a dove upon him, and then the Word comes out. There's a word that's spoken from the Father. It says, this is my beloved Son. Doesn't that sound a lot like John chapter 17? <laughs> this is the, the way you love me. This is my beloved Son. And then it says next, in whom I am well pleased. You know what's going on right there? We are in the, in the baptism of Jesus is a picture of the very life of the Father's love for the Son. It's a life of the Trinity itself. And when you become a Christian, you're not, it's not just a, some religious piece of water that goes on you. You're being drawn into the very life of the Holy Trinity itself. And the Father is now going to confer, confer upon you the words that he conferred upon Christ. Because you are not in Christ. And he's going to say this of you. This is my beloved son. Noah. This is my beloved Noah. In whom I am. Deeply pleased. This is my beloved Katie, my Katie, in whom I am. Take great pleasure. You believe that? You know, some of you guys are listening to this going, okay, so you dropped this big piece of theology at the beginning, and you're saying, but when you get down to the implication, implication number one is God's got a plan for me. <laughs> implication number two is God takes pleasure in me. It's like, come on, pastor, this, isn't this like kindergarten stuff? It is. You know, if you're like me, you got to hang up, and your problem is you're just way too prideful. <laughs> I heard this since I was a kid in church. God's got a plan for me, and God is pleased with me. He takes pleasure in me. And I was thinking like, okay, okay all right, all right, let's get past the kindergarten stuff. I'm a big boy now. I'm a smart boy I want to get to the, the bigger theology. Give me the bigger theology, the more advanced, like, AP honors stuff, right? Give me that stuff, right? Because I'm well past kindergarten here, right? And, you know, let, let me say this to you. If you want to get to the advanced conceptual stuff, but you can't, you don't really deeply have grasped and believe God has a plan for you, God is pleased with you, you'll never really be a good, you'll never turn out to be a strong Christian because you never outgrow you never, ever outgrow this. And in fact, this is the weird part of Christianity. You grow, 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 and then when you get come around, you start coming around to being a child again. A child who is absolutely confident 
that the father doesn't show up to you depressed. And this is the way most of you think. You know, especially Asian Americans. When you think, you just don't believe that God takes pleasure in you. Because what you see is, if God, whenever God looks at me, what he sees is my flaws. He sees my failures. He sees my lack. He sees my shame. He just sees my crud. He sees crud. Because, <laughs> I mean, because he can see everything, right? And if a person could really see me, they would see my crud. That's, they would see that I suck. I'm really not that great. So everybody's kind of like, you know, you put on the clothes, you know. I, I wore my Brooks Brothers shirt today. You know, this is about as nice a shirt as I got. And we put all this stuff on. And this, except you do it not just with your physical clothes. You do it in your actions and in your insecurity and in the face you put on. But you know before God it's not. So if God could really see me, how could he be pleased with me? I suck. Right? Or I'm not all that. Now, if you think I'm all that, you know, then, then you're kind of weird. Okay? But um. You probably have a, a, some, a different kind of problem. But that's how you think. Because you, when you think of who you are and see who you are, you know how you see yourself? You see yourself in yourself. You see only you, the self that I make with my attainments, with my righteousness, with my worthiness, with all my performance to how hard I try. That's how you see yourself. And you always know that that thing is half empty. I mean, it's not even a half. It's more like mostly empty. <laughs> Like, I don't even have a half full cup, Pastor. I have more like a, like a tiny little, you know, drip a few water at the bottom. It's mostly empty. And you think because you see yourself that way, that's who you are, and that's how God sees you, but that's totally not how God sees you. Because when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. He sees you shrouded in all that is done by the cross. He sees you filled with Christ. He's not looking at the deficient you. He's looking at you. The full you. You always think it's half empty. For God, it's always full and getting full. And you're thinking it's never going to be full. For God, it's absolutely going to be full. In fact, it's going to be better than full. It's going to overflow. It's always going to. It's not a question of if your cup will overflow. It's when. It just is. And that's how he sees you. And when he sees that, he takes total pleasure in you. Not just, oh, God's people, generic, I know God takes pleasure in in you. Um, Just tell you this little illustration before I go to the third point. You know, um, I was far too prideful, and I don't think I could have ever gotten this until I became a dad. I don't think I could ever understand this until I became a dad. I've been a dad for about 11 years now, since 11 years old. And, you know, there's this, if you, you, most of you who uh, are, are not parents, you just don't really probably understand how much your parents love you. You just don't understand. You know as a, as a fact in your mind that your parents love you. Okay? But after you have a kid, you love your child with an intensity that is so unreal. It's crazy. I mean, it's like it's, it's bottomless. And, and then if you actually, if you, I want you to stop for a moment. Those of you who are parents, the way you love your kid, and just think for a moment that your dad loves you that way, your mom loves you that way. Just stop. Just think about that. As messed up of parents that they may have been, <laughs> as whatever failure they may have been, if they're not crazy or just totally whacked, just, just kind of normal, deficient, C-minus, D-plus parents, okay, like most, most parents are, right? 
this is the way they love you. And let me tell you, I take great pleasure in all my kids. And I don't take them in my kids. I take pleasure in Hudson for every unique, weird thing that he is, and in Laura and in Elizabeth. I mean, I, I, I love Hudson's weird curly hair. Hudson is a dude's dude. When Hudson starts screaming at the TV at the Dallas Cowboys because he loves them and hates them all at once because I have a love-hate weird thing with them, right? I'm just like, that's my boy. I just take such pleasure in watching him go a little whacked, right? And each of my kids, I know each of the things that are in them, and I, I do not ever see them. I just take pleasure in them. I hope they can see that, but I, they probably don't, okay, because I'm like a C-minus dad or worse, right? And I'll just tell you this little story. Um, when, when each of my kids were born, I found myself singing a song for them that I made up, and I, I am not a composer. <laughs> my wife called them, oh, they were your terrible songs that you keep singing. That's what she would say. The terrible songs, and she's right, they're terrible songs, Okay. And, but when they were little babies, I would sing songs for them. And each of them had a song. I had a song for Hudson. I had a song for Laura. And I had a song for Elizabeth. I didn't sit around and cook up the song. It just flowed out of my pleasure in them. Right? So, um, like, Laura was born, and I'd never had a... I, 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 my, in my family, it's just me and my brother. I mean, we are like total, typical, insensitive, clawed dudes. And we never had a little sister to ever learn this stuff. But So having a daughter was the first time I ever had this beautiful package of femininity in my arms. And it, was, it was incredible. Right? And, um, and so at that time, I was in my PhD studies at Westminster. And I would know, drive back and forth, back to seminary and back to our apartment. And nobody else is in the car. The radio is off. And you know what I would do? I'd be singing my song to my daughter. So, you know, so I'll let you suffer it. Here it goes. It's, it would go, I'd be singing this, I'd be driving home, and I would go, The Laura girl that I like. <laughs> Laura girl that I like. Very much, very much. And I would sing that song. And then, and then, I, would, and then I wrapped it around. I, I, I tried to come up with the second verse, but I couldn't. All right? there, was no, there wasn't a second verse. I was like, you notice how music is weird? You could say the goofiest thing, but if you say it to music, it sounds better. You know, Jesus, you are my king. You could say that like three times. You are my king. You are my king. It's like the lyrics are totally simple, but like if you sing it, it's like great, right? And I found myself, I, I had such pleasure in my daughter that the only way that it could come out properly was in a terrible song. <laughs> and I would sing it when nobody else is around just because pleasure is just coming off of me. And then I would go home and pick her up and kiss her in a little, like, you know, little, this little part of her neck, and she'd giggle, and I would sing, Laura girl that I like very much, <laughs> very much. <laughs> and I am a C-minus dad. You don't think God thinks of you that way? I don't think God thinks of you that way. You've got to believe. You've got to learn how to believe. Okay? Number three. Number one, God has a special plan for you. Number two, 
God takes great pleasure in you. He's pleased with you. Number three, the Father believes in you. He believes in you. Man, (laughs) that's what you got, Pastor? You're going to end with the Father believes in you? That's weird, isn't it? Doesn't that sound so, like, (laughs) foo-foo? Doesn't that sound so touchy-feely and mushy? He believes in you, (laughs) right? He believes in you. (laughs) Um, I think Asian Americans, I particularly want to say this to you. I think Asian Americans really need this series and especially need this sermon, especially if you're Asian American. In all likelihood, because Asian Americans have a parenting. Maybe your mom or dad wasn't psychotic or depressed, but the way they generally talk to you was always to tell you to, to try harder, to do better. They're always telling you the way in which you can improve. This will help you. So they prod you. They, like, scare you. They guilt you. They, they, they bribe you to improve. They're always trying to get you to improve and get your game up. You know, it starts off with school. You know one of the reasons why Asian Americans are so good at school? Because ever since you were little, the sense that my pleasure will be withheld from you, you know, unless you try to do well. And you, look, if, there's, if, the, if our country, if, the, if there's a competition between the Asians and, like, say, the white folks, so if you're white in, our, in this room, you know, just, let me just tell you, just, this is the way it's going. If there's a competition between us and you in school, you will lose. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's like it's, you will lose because cause this is why Asians keep going after degree after degree. It's like you got to first excel in high school, then college, then you got to get the master's, then you got to... As far as schooling can go, the Asian will keep going there. Because then at that point, they'll say, pleasure from mom and dad. That's they'll finally think they're going to get it. And so there's probably more Asian postdocs. You guys know what a postdoc is? A postdoc is the absolute whack human being that got a PhD and then did something after that. That's like as far as you can go. Okay? The postdoc is as far as you can go. If there was a competition for postdocs in America, just, you know, white people, you got no chance, right? Like if we're going to just line them up by ethnicities or something like this, right? Because this was that. But all along that track, you're trained by your parents to just, they they constantly got to like prod you with the performance stick. Glass half empty, get it fuller, get it fuller. It's with the school. It's, it's terrible. It's with everything. The Asian parenting method. It's, it's weird to me that in a, probably within this next generation, the Asians are going to start running the country. Sorry about that, white people, but that's true. <laughs> right? The Asians are the new Jews. Whoever gets to the end of the school track, they tend to run the country. Just after a few, just look at the people who are at the end of the school track. A generation later, they will run the country. That's the Asians, Okay. And everybody will think, oh, they're successful. They're the model minority. They're the most messed up, mangled people inside. We're the most messed up, mangled people inside. Because this thing, your parents are always telling you, try harder. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, and when they, when they, the way they motivate you is 
by this face. It's not even they tell you that, that you're not measuring up. It's their face. Disappointment. Oh, oh, oh. You know that, that maybe you'll make it. You know? That disappointment. And so you're conditioned by this parenting, which is, I don't really believe in you. Maybe you'll make it if you try harder. It's not I believe in you. Maybe you'll make it if you try harder. I don't believe in you. Maybe if you just have, you know, do a thousand algebra problems. Okay? If your parents were a little less psychotic, 500 or 200, okay? I make my son do all 45 problems <laughs> in his pre-algebra book. So even I'm, I, there's some of that in me. But you see, the father, he believes in you, though. You don't think, you think the, the father had this conversation with the son. Son, I've got this plan for you, and you're going to become great. And you're going to go down there, and, but, you know, I'm not sure you're going to make it. <laughs> you might not make it. You should just try harder. Do you think that conversation ever happened? The plan of the father with the son before eternity, before, in all eternity, before creation, that's called the covenant of redemption. I'm telling you, there was never a point in there where the father said, I'm not sure if you're going to make it. If the father loves Jesus this way, is it possible that the father could love Jesus but not believe in Jesus? Not believe in his son to carry out his will and his plan? Is it possible? No. It's absolutely crazy. But if you think that God loves you with some kind of like junior varsity, scraps off the table, it's like Jesus gets the main dish. I just get like that crappy cracker with the cheese appetizer. That's the most love off the table I get because I'm not like Jesus. You're wrong. You are like Jesus in every way that matters. And... If the Father believes in the Son, Jesus, he believes in you. He believes in you. It's crazy. I'm going to say two points and we'll close the sermon, right? Earlier I told you there's two tremendous mysteries. One was the Holy Trinity. In the baptism, you see this. The Father pronouncing pleasure upon the Son. It's you. Okay? That's what you get when you get baptized. The other thing is the cross. This is why it's not foo-foo. This is why it's not fairy tale. This is, this is crazy. This is the, the bottom deepest thing. And it's not a fairy tale, but it sounds so much like a fairy tale. It's so, it's like too good to believe. It sounds, so even the prideful Christians who think they're too smart and they want to get past to the more advanced AP stuff, you're like, oh, the kindergarten stuff, it's too easy. It's not too easy. It's too fairy tale. Here's why it's not a fairy tale. On the cross, there is a great exchange that occurs. And here's what it is. You come to the cross with all your half cup, your failures, your disappointment, your apathy, all of that stuff in which you are not even a son, you're a rebel. You come and that goes on Jesus. And when he dies, that dies. And you know what? You get Jesus comes and he brings the other side of the exchange. You know what he gives you? His sonship. That's what he gives you. His sonship and everything that comes with it from the Father. That's what he gives you. That's what happens on the cross. 
this is why it's not a fairy tale. The, the cross is not a fairy tale. It happened. It's as real as anything. Let me close with this. A couple weeks ago, three weeks or so ago, I went to um, a resurgence conference. Resurgence is a conference run by pastors for church leaders. Uh, in this particular case, it's particularly run by Mars Hill Church Mark Driscoll. It's sort of like the main guy. Pastor Mark Driscoll sort of the main guy of this conference. And what he did was he took some of his, the pastors that he respects and leaders that he respects the most, and he brought them all together. And he says, leaders, show up at this thing, and you'll learn different things from different pastors, and it'll help you to do stronger gospel ministry in your church. One of the speakers he brought was Pastor Rick Warren. You guys all know who Rick Warren is, right? He's only the most famous evangelical Christian in the whole world, okay? Um, he wrote the best-selling book after the Bible. You guys, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is the number one best-selling book. It's never put on the New York Times bestseller list because it would be at number one all the time. The fact that they don't put it on there to me is just the lie of the devil, <laughs> all right? They should say, how many Bibles were sold last year? Oh, like 20 million or like 100, 200 million, 150 million. Well, who's number two? Oh, he sold two million. Oh, okay. Then you would see that the word of God is always winning, but we don't. So that the Bible, you know, the New York Times doesn't tell you that. Thus, you know, you're deluded by the devil, right? But the number two bestseller is written by Rick Warren. It's called Purpose Driven Life. He wrote two books. Purpose Driven Church, which is a good book, and Purpose Driven Life, which is an even better book. I've, written, I've read both of those I'd never heard Rick Warren speak. I'd never heard him speak, so I didn't know what he was like. I've heard good things about him. I've heard bad things about him. There's all kinds of people who think he's not smart enough or he's not this enough or not theological, whatever, okay? Who cares? I, I, didn't, I didn't really care. I thought Rick Warren's a, he's a good pastor, isn't he? I mean, like, he, he's trying to cure AIDS. I mean, come on. <laughs> and he's actually getting somewhere with it. So, went to this conference. Rick Warren gave up a talk, and he is a really big man. Just like, I don't know how tall he is. I'm 6'3", maybe 6'4". He's a big, he's a big man, and, every, and he's a big man, okay? And I don't know if you know this, but um, Rick Warren, is it, I, I read this in Time Magazine, I don't know, a year or so ago or something like that. Rick Warren, they, they did a baptism day at, at Saddleback Church, and, you know, he was baptizing all these people, and, you know, they're Baptists, so, you know, they, they get dunked, and he's pulling them out. And he noticed a lot of them were really heavy. And he's like, man, after like, you know, lifting like 80 people really heavy, he's like, man, our, we're big and I'm tired and my back is hurting, right? <laughs> he's like, and, he, and he realized, he goes, wow, we are heavy. And um, he led a campaign to help his church get more fit. They actually, <laughs> they actually counted all the, all the pounds that they lost. I mean, it's, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds that they lost, right? And Rick Warren recently lost 80 pounds. So he said, he said, uh, he, I, I, his line was something like, he goes, I, he goes, I've, you know, I've been in ministry at this church and I've gained a couple pounds a year, but unfortunately I have been your pastor a long time. <laughs> and so those pounds add up. And, he, and so he started, so this is how powerful Rick Warren is to his congregation. He got them to lose thousands of pounds. Let me tell you something. I don't know any other pastor that could do that. <laughs> like none, zero. If I would say, hey, guys, let's lose weight. You guys would be like, Shh, come on. Right? 
you know, I'll just ignore me. You probably leave the church. You're like, that's, a, that's the end of it. But Rick Warren actually dropped 80 pounds himself. And I was looking at him thinking like, dude, you dropped 80 pounds, but you're still fat. <laughs> and I was thinking about that article when, when I was looking at him. So my point is he's this big dude, but he doesn't, he doesn't really look like anything special. He's not particularly handsome, right? Um, he doesn't talk in some, some special, smart, sophisticated way. He, he, he doesn't have some kind of power, so to speak. It's like, you know, he zaps you. He doesn't look like anything special. He's just this big kind of fat dude who's really passionate about Christ. And he started going, and he's really into the Bible. You know, when you go to this conference, you expect from God, he tells you what makes him smart. He's like, I have this, these key. I've got these little silver bullet smart points. And, and that's what you expect to get. That's what you get a lot of these conferences. But that's not what he does. What he does is he goes into the Bible, he cites something in the Bible, and then he tells you something really great about God that he knows from the Bible. That's what he does. And he just, he just goes off. He just starts riffing. You, you get the impression that he had a couple points in his head, and then he just got up, and then Mark Driscoll just started asking him questions, and then he just, boom, and just, he just went off. Right? And there was a Q&A portion, and there's 2,000 people in the room, and the Q&A portion went, he was the last speaker of the day, and he went long, and nobody left. Nobody cared. It was just, it was kind of electrifying. It was incredible. But here's two things that I got. When I saw Rick Warren, here's what I got from the man that I think this makes him so special. One is, one is, he really loves the church. And when I say he loves the church, I don't, he doesn't mean like institutions. He loves the people who are God's people. He really loves them, loves them powerfully. And when he talks to you, you get that feeling that he just genuinely loves the people he's talking to. It's not just a show. It's real. It's very real. There's big guy and all his big energy it's coming off of him and it's like he really loves the church loves the people of the church right and the second thing you get is he believes in you that's weird when he's talking to you he's talking to around 2,000 people but he, he sounds like he's having a conversation with you <laughs> he's talking to you telling you stuff and when he's telling you is a big God with absolute crazy love for you. And so when Rick Warren believes in you, you just think, wow. I, when I was sitting there, I was thinking like, I would like this guy to be my pastor. <laughs> I can see how if I'm ta- listening to this guy and he goes, hey, guys, Let's go cure AIDS in Africa. And we're like, sure, let's do it. You'd believe it. You'd begin to start to think that you could do it. And that's a pastor. <laughs> that's, he, that's what the effect that a pastor can have on a person. I was just under his spell for like an hour, so to speak, his spell. But you know why I think he has that power? Because he went to God and found out the Father believes in him this way. And I think he just sees himself as just a dude. And if the Father loves me this way, won't he do this and more with other people? I think he believes that. You know, many of you, if you can get this from a pastor, what would it be like 
if you would go in prayer to the Father yourself and ask him, Father, you take pleasure in me? Do you have a plan for me? you believe in me? And in that prayer, what if the answer was, I do, I do. It'll change you. You'll start becoming wild. And I think a room full of Rick Warrens will dump the world upside down. Can happen to you. Can happen to you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be like Pastor Rick. I'm not like Pastor Rick, but I want to be like him. Really, what I want to be is I just want to be your son. And I want to know that you believe in me. I pray for all the sons and daughters who hear this message. You would unfurl this unbelief. I know they believe this, but they don't. We don't. And so, Lord, send your spirit, because we need your spirit to believe this thing that you teach us. Just put your spirit in us and help us to believe. See your spirit come on us and hear the Father say, You are my beloved son. You are my precious daughter. I take great pleasure in you. I believe in you. Help us to believe this, Lord. Be a church that starts affecting this city in crazy, strange, and odd ways, just like Jesus did in his city. Pray you do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.